This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, GP's role in weight management. What if your doctor could prescribe you fresh produce for free? I never really thought about eating nuts previously, but now I will have nuts instead of a bag of chips. You know, maybe an orange instead of glasses of orange juice. That's interesting. Prescribing later on on the Health Report and time-restricted eating, a form of intermittent fasting where you limit your eating to a few hours of the day and fast the rest of the time. Anecdotally, at least from the questions I get from you, there's huge interest in both the health and weight loss benefits, if any, of time-restricted eating. Well, now there's been a randomised trial of weight loss in a group of obese people who were all on calorie restriction, but half had their calories in a narrow time window. One of the senior researchers was Dr Courtney Peterson, who's Associate Professor of Nutrition Sciences at the University of Alabama, Alabama, Birmingham, and I spoke to her earlier. Thank you so much for having me. There's a huge interest in time-restricted eating, the 5-2 diet, et cetera, et cetera. But what did we know particularly about time-restricted eating before you did your randomised trial? Uh, so there had been... Can, can you remember that uh, long ago? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we've done a, a number of studies in my lab, but when I first got started, there were maybe only one or two studies out there And one of them had actually tested what happens when you eat in about a four-hour period and fast for the rest of the day. So time-restricted eating, just for your audience, is any sort of intermittent fasting approach where you shorten your daily eating window, which you can do either by eating breakfast later in the day and or dinner earlier in the day. So for instance, instead of a lot of people normally fast for about 12 hours a day, you might lengthen that to 16 or 18 hours a day. So prior to our work, there had been a little bit of research on time-restricted eating. It really came to the forefront in 2012 with a really fascinating study showing that if rodents practice time-restricted eating, even if they eat the same amount of food, they actually gain less weight, they have better blood sugar control, lower cholesterol levels, lower levels of inflammation, and just across their board, they're a lot healthier. But rats aren't humans. Correct. Rats aren't humans. So back over a decade ago, my lab saw this research and thought, this is fantastic. This is really interesting. What happens if we actually test this in humans? Will we get the same impressive results? So my lab did a study where we took men with prediabetes and we had them try eating in a six-hour window and fasting 18 hours a day, and also eating over about a 12-hour window and fasting 12 hours a day. And in this particular study, we made them eat the same amount of food on both schedules. So that way, if there were any differences between schedules, it wasn't because one group was eating different food or more or less food. And what we found in that first study that we did is we found that the time-restricted eating improved their blood sugar levels and their blood sugar control. It also lowered their blood pressure by about 10 to 11 points, which is pretty large. And we also found some improvement in what's called oxidative stress. So this is a form of molecular damage in the body. And we followed that up shortly afterwards, trying to figure out, okay, so there's a bunch of research suggesting that intermittent fasting helps you lose weight. Why is that? Is it because it helps you magically burn more calories or is it because it helps you eat less? Is it doing something to help suppress your appetite? And so we did a really cool study where we brought people who are overweight into our research center and we had them spend 24 hours in what's called a metabolic or respiratory chamber. So this is a really cool room that measures how many calories you burn. And it does that by... 
uh, measuring how much oxygen you breathe out, uh, breathe in and how much carbon dioxide you breathe out. And what we found in the studies that doesn't look like time-restricted eating helps you burn more calories. Instead, it looks like it actually suppresses your appetite. So we measured an appetite hormone called ghrelin, and we actually found that the time-restricted eating lowered levels of ghrelin. And our participants also said that it made their hunger levels more even-keeled throughout the day. So this new study is a randomized trial in people with obesity, where mm -hmm. everybody's on energy restriction, but some are on time-restricted eating. That's correct. Following our first two studies, we're really interested in the question, does time-restricted eating help you lose weight when you're trying to lose weight? And in this particular study, we were interested in trying a form of time-restricted eating called early time-restricted eating. So we did a study. We took adults who had obesity. Our hospital has a weight loss program. It's what we call a medically supervised weight loss program. And we enrolled them in that program for 14 weeks. And participants were randomized to either a control group where they were instructed to eat over a 12-hour or longer period each day, or we had them eat over an eight-hour period and do 16 hours of daily fasting. So these are kind of your 16-8 uh, intermittent fasting approaches. And we had them do this eight hours of eating between 7 a.m. in the morning and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So a little bit more on the extreme side of things. And then we gave them all kinds of weight loss counseling and support. So we had a dietitian meet with them once a month. Uh, every week they had group classes on exercise. They both goal had that. Setting. Yes, we, provi we provided those classes. And that was matched across groups. So both groups got the same weight loss treatment. And what we found at the end of the study is that the participants who were trying to lose weight and who did the early time restricted eating lost uh, significantly more weight. And we were able to trace that back um, or kind of back calculate how many calories that was equivalent to cutting. And we found out it was equivalent to cutting an extra 200 calories a day. So we're finding the early time restricted eating gives you about a moderate boost in weight loss and helps you eat uh, about 200 calories here per day. So they were actually eating less in the day. It, it, it wasn't the equivalent of 200 calories. They actually were eating 200 calories a day less. It was the equivalent of eating 200 calories per day. We don't know for certain whether they were eating less or being physically active. In our study, we didn't find that they were, were reporting eating less, but most other studies have found that people do eat less. What could be going on here? I mean, first of all, if you fast for 12 hours or 18 hours, you're going to become a bit keto. You're going to get, it's going to be a bit ketogenic and that could be causing the difference. Did you find, did you look at whether or not it was actually effectively a ketogenic diet? Yeah, we've looked at that in another study in my lab and we actually find that ketone levels don't go very high with time-restricted eating and that you need to be fasting for more like two days to really see a big increase in ketone levels. We do see a small increase, but we don't think that's what's going on here. We do think we we have found in other studies that time-restricted eating lowers that appetite hormone ghrelin. Um, and there was another study that just came out this year that found that when you do time-restricted eating, you lose an extra about 50 calories per day in your urine and your stool. Uh, so there may be a combination of factors here that help people lose more weight. And the other issue is how much weight you're losing through fat loss versus muscle loss. You don't want to lose muscle, you want to lose fat. Correct. In our study, we found the extra weight loss was entirely through fat loss. Um, and we found they were able to retain their muscle mass, which is great. And diet quality. Um, one of the issues with more extreme forms of dieting is that people tend to ignore their diet quality and think, well, they can eat anything they like. 
Yes, absolutely. In our study, we didn't find that the time-restricted eating either helps people eat more healthfully or made them eat worse. It was just about the same. We found that most people ended up practicing time-restricted eating by just eating the same foods as before and the same number of meals as before and just compressing that into a shorter time period. You've done a 14-week study, which is great, but people have got to do this presumably for life if you're obese or certainly for an extended length of time. And the question is how sustainable it is. And one of the issues here is if you're not eating dinner, dinner is often when people socialize. How sustainable is it? Yeah. So I don't think early time restricted eating is going to be for everyone. In our study, we asked participants to follow it six out of seven days a week. And most of them were able to follow it. Nearly everyone was able to follow it five out of seven days a week for those 14 weeks. What was quite interesting is that at the beginning of the study, almost no one wanted to try early time restricted <laughs> eating. But by the end of the 14 weeks, about 40% of participants in the study wanted to continue with it. So we think there's something about the weight loss benefits or the mood benefits that a significant number of people are willing to try it. But the good news is the data suggests that even if you do time-restricted eating by eating a little bit later in the day, you still get some benefits. And then if intermittent fasting is just not for you, the data suggests that if you still try to eat more of your calories early in the day, such as have a big breakfast or lunch, that still help, helps improve your health. And the other issue with the more extreme forms of diet is that your body adjusts to the lower calorie intake and your resting metabolic rate goes down and therefore the calorie gap reduces or you get reduced benefit as time goes on. Did you notice that in this study? We did not in this study. We didn't measure how many calories people burn, but we have another larger study where we're going to answer this exact question. Courtney, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Courtney Peterson is Associate Professor of Nutrition Scientists at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So, Tegan, are you going to just now give up on dinner? No, man, no way. Uh, it sounds like it's good for the people in her study, but I think perhaps our next story might shed a bit more light on diet quality. Yeah, well, you're listening to The Health Report. Doctors are really good at prescribing medicine, you know, the thing you get after you're already sick, but our health system doesn't really support them to prescribe things that aren't medicine, that we know help prevent people from getting sick or sicker in the first place. But a recent study has tried to be a proof of concept on how that could look, prescribing free healthy food boxes to people with poorly managed diabetes who were living with food insecurity. One of the people who received the boxes was Emma, who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes around the start of the pandemic. I spoke with her earlier. I was going through a very rough time with depression and at that time being newly diagnosed it's extremely daunting. You know, I had to make choices and I probably didn't make the best choices. I'd be searching or eating food at two o'clock in the morning, something crazy like, you know, a bowl of pasta or sandwiches and, you know, my portions were out of whack. It was an absolute joy to wake up in the morning and prepare a breakfast. You know, nuts, fruit, piece of toast, coffee, it seemed to, seemed to regulate my waking hours, my exercise. You know, it lifted my daily energy levels, changed my shopping habits. I started to read the back of labels when I'd never really done that before. So this was a 12-week program and it's finished now. How are you going? Like, yeah. you're sort of back on your own again. I think what is great about this study is... 
it is fresh ingredients that you can now just go to the supermarket and implement those kind of dietary changes. I never really thought about eating nuts previously, but now I will have nuts instead of a bag of chips, you know, maybe an orange instead of glasses of orange juice. As daunting as diabetes is, I feel like I'm managing the food part of things way more sensibly than before. That was Emma, a participant in a recent pilot study into prescribing healthy food to people with food insecurity. One of the brains behind the study itself was Professor Jason Wu from the George Institute of Global Health. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. So we heard Emma talking there about the healthy food boxes that were provided, but that wasn't all that was involved in this pilot study, was it? Uh, no, that's right. So, so in addition to providing the healthy foods, which is really about improving people's access to um, some of the most important ingredients we know that are, that are for our health, we also did provide dietary education as well. So we really want to acknowledge that, you know, people may have the, they need both. They, they need to have the knowledge about what they should be eating, how to cook it, how to store it, but also at the same time having access to these foods will, will mean that they can actually action on um, that knowledge and, and make it a reality. So people with food insecurity, that seems relatively self-explanatory, but there are lots of uh, diseases that involve diet or diet can help moderate. Why did you choose diabetes for this study? Yeah, absolutely. So type 2 diabetes is one of the fastest growing chronic uh, conditions in Australia. And and we, we know that diet, without a doubt, is one of the most important uh, factors driving uh, the, the increase in prevalence of diabetes in, in, our, in our society. So um, that, that's why we really wanted to look at the... And also one other thing to quickly mention as well, people with um, food insecurity or experiencing food insecurity and type 2 diabetes tend to do the worst as well. So they have worse long-term outcomes. So we thought it was particularly important to look at um, supplying uh, nutritious foods in, in this uh, population. Right, the boxes in contain fruit and veg, but also whole grains, dairy, nuts, uh, proteins as well. I didn't manage to actually play the part, but Emma was talking about just how the cost of fresh food has mm. just really made it so difficult for her to, to eat healthy, even when she really wants to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, we talk about this in, in, in terms of what we call structural barriers to healthy eating, right? So um, again, if you think about it, our, our healthcare right now spends billions and billions of dollars um, treating what are really the uh, downstream consequences of, of nutrition, so eating, a, eating a, a not a nutritious diet, um, and yet so little of that healthcare dollars actually flow towards subsidising and paying for uh, the very factor that we know are driving these conditions. So um, so, so really the, the idea of produce prescription is to try and say we should be redirecting some of that healthcare resource to enable people to, to eat better um, by actually supporting and subsidising these healthy foods. Yeah, moving away from just being altruistic or health focused, can we talk about money a bit? Like, do you, did you do any modelling on what the payoff is, the cost of these boxes versus the healthcare payoff downstream? Mm -hmm. We're still at a relatively early stage um, in this research in Australia, but in the United States, for example, where these programs are a lot more advanced, I mean, they're already 
fully being reimbursed for by um, California state government, for example, and Massachusetts government. Um, there is definitely research coming out now that suggests that for every dollar that government puts into these programs, they get multiple dollars of healthcare savings back. And in some ways, that's not really surprising. I mean, we know that um, treating diet-related conditions like diabetes, like heart disease, you know, every surgery, every medication we have to prescribe tend to cost government a lot of money. So if we're able to get people to eat better, uh, have access to more nutrition, foods, um, that, you know, it is very likely that we're going to save, we could potentially save hundreds of millions of dollars in the long run. Right. So coming back to the study, this study itself, how did you measure success over this 12-week period? Yeah, so we really looked at a combination of, of outcomes that, that to, to look at how what, what the, the produce prescription helped to change. So we looked at people's diet, so how it changed over the 12 weeks, and what we found is that people ate not only more of the healthy, nutritious produce of fruits and vegetables, um, but they also actually reduced the consumption of some of the less healthy things in, in, in the diet, so things like sugary drinks, things like processed meats. And, and we think that that's really because of the synergy of having access to the healthy things, but also having uh, accredited dietitians who were able to work with the participants individually to say, hey, let's also think about setting some goals on reducing things on, on, on the less healthy things. They, we also, they also drank yes, less alcohol. They had less yes, they alcohol did. consumption. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, so it's really... Um, the, the way that we designed the, the dietary intervention is really around what we call diet quality. So it was not about, you know, um, cutting down on your calories, focus on losing weight, because we, we're quite conscious that that can actually lead to a lot of stigmatization of people thinking, oh, all the problem is because I, I, I'm just overweight and I have weak, you know, don't have good willpower. The focus is really on about changing the entire dietary pattern and diet quality. And we saw some really fantastic results there. So where to from here? Yeah, so, you know, really, I think the next step is that this, this result, together with all the other um, research that's been done in this area, suggests that um, what we call produce prescription, which falls under the broader umbrella term that food is medicine, um, has real um, uh, potential to, to not only improve uh, treatment of chronic uh, diseases, it can also make people feel better, improve overall well-being for, for people with um, diet-related conditions. So what we really want to do is to scale up the sort of studies that we're doing to get even better evidence, but also work together with partners across sectors, so healthcare providers, uh, government policy makers, and also uh, uh, people in the food industry who, who really has a role to play in this in terms of supplying that healthy food to make sure that we can actually integrate these programs into healthcare. Yeah, because there isn't really a model for this so far, is there? No, that's that's exactly right. In Australia right now, our, our healthcare, you know, when it comes to um, you know supporting people to eat better, really sort of starts and stops at, at doctor better or, or go give you a prescription to go and see uh, a dietitian, which is they're all important things. But I think these kinds of programs can and should be massively expanded so that some of the healthcare resources actually go towards um, um, being, being able to prescribe healthy food. Anything that really surprised you with this study, Jason? Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess one um, factor really is just how um, I guess prevalent you know people are, are experiencing food insecurities. I mean, well, that's not a surprise, but it's also for us to do this study to observe that was still a bit of a shock. And in Australia, one of the richest uh, countries on, on earth, um, but with recent COVID and the economic downturns, we definitely noticed that um, there is a real need for the, these kinds of support in the community. Um, but also, the second thing was just how well the, this, the sort of delivery program worked well for. So, so overwhelmingly, the study participants told us that, look, you know, having a box 
of healthy foods delivered to them, having their dietitian being able to speak with them on a regular basis. The, the, the overwhelming feedback was just that they were so positive about, about, about the program and they really want to see it continue. So, um, so yeah, so it's a good surprise um, and, and hopefully bodes well for our, for our long-term studies. Yeah, we'll watch with interest. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Professor Jason Wu is head of the Nutrition Science Program at the George Institute for Global Health at the University of New South Wales. And weight loss isn't necessarily a goal for everyone, but when it is necessary, it makes sense that many people would like to do it under the guidance of their GP. But this isn't an approach that's well-funded in Australia at the moment. One of the people who thinks it should be is an author of a recent perspective piece in MJA Insight who joins us now. Welcome, Liz Sturgis. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me. Why are GPs the right person to be supervising weight loss attempts? Well, when people have uh, conditions like obesity or type 2 diabetes, when uh, reducing their weight would help their health, GPs have a holistic view of people. So we can look after anything from your mental health to your physical health. um, And so we can kind of do it all in one package. Um, And we really base it around the relationship between the GP and the patient. The notorious problem with weight loss is that getting it off is relatively easy, but keeping it off is the real challenge. What does the evidence show actually works? Yeah, so, I mean, in the, the, the stories you've just heard there, there's a lot of different ways to approach weight and it has to be individualised to each person. So while like a, a time-restricted pattern might work very well for some people, other people would really benefit from, say, that provision of a healthy food box. Um, and if your GP kind of knows you as a person, your family, your community, um, and what might work best for you, that's when they can give that individualised care. Because really anything that you do to improve your nutrition, be more physically active, it needs to be something that you can sustain um, so that you can have maintain that, that better quality of um, health. So you were an author on a recent paper in the, uh, in the BMJ, which was looking at people, it's mostly a UK study, but one of the things it found really was that an intensive program where you're really seeing that general practitioner again and again over months was what sort of led to the best outcomes for people. But there's really no framework in Australia that would support that, is there? Yeah, so the study showed that we needed at least 12 visits with the general practice team to make a a difference for most people and their weight. Um, And as a GP, I mean, I really feel a bit like we're working in a bit of a broken system. Um, We we don't have enough funding and enough uh, referral pathways for patients um, that want to work on their weight. So if we we work in, say, um, the chronic disease model that's funded under Medicare, you're you're allowed um, five rebateable allied health sessions a year. So compared to 12 sessions, that's five is probably not going to be very helpful. And then we know that a lot of, we we don't have enough allied health practitioners in Australia as well. And a lot of people need to pay a gap payment when they see their allied health practitioners. And then for people who need more intensive um, support around their weight, there's currently no medications available on the PBS to support um, weight. Um, And the public system in terms of bariatric surgery, it's extremely difficult to get um, bariatric surgery in the public system. So really, I feel like I'm working in a bit of a broken system, which is compounded because we know people in the lower socioeconomic groups are more affected by obesity. Um, so it's a real catch-22. Yeah, it's that classic thing of the people who are most in need are least likely to be able to afford it. 
Absolutely. And like we see that in the literature and demonstrated in the data time and time again, but still our systems don't seem to be geared to putting that care in the place where it's needed the most. And just on consistency of care, we we hear a lot about obesity. It's one of those things that seems to be a focal point. There was an action plan that was launched a couple of months ago, but the NHMRC clinical guidelines haven't been updated for some years and are well out of date now. Yeah, I think they were rescinded in about 2013. That was when they were sort of due to be taken back and they haven't um, been redone yet. So I think that would be a really excellent step um, into supporting weight management from primary care all the way through to secondary care. So we're all working from consistent guidelines that really have the best evidence in them. You mentioned allied health before, but some people, I mean, you're saying that there's not a lot of access to that often, especially in the places where it's most needed, but some people don't even have a regular GP. Yeah, I mean, um, I think when you when we look at the data and ask people, you know, do they have a regular GP? Some people say no to a GP, but most people have a practice that they would consider their regular practice. It's really hard to get data on that. I mean, as general practice researchers, we tend to say, if you've seen that GP two to three times in the last uh, two to three years, and that is your regular practice, that's our sort of standard. Uh, but that relationship-based care is extremely important. Um, and when a, when a doctor knows you well and knows your, your health problems and your, your work and your family, um, they're, they're more able to take better care of you. Um, so I guess as a, as a f- form of taking over, looking after your own health, forming a relationship with a GP who you trust um, and who knows you, it's a, a good investment in your own health. It is a bit of a wicked problem though. Where do we start in Australia to fix it? Yeah, sometimes it's hard to keep hopeful, but I haven't quite lost hope yet. Um, I think having those NHMRC clinical guidelines updated would be amazing. Um, The National Obesity Strategy is looking amazing. It's looking a lot um, at the role of um, primary care more broadly. Um, I was really impressed to see in those national guidelines talking about weight stigma and how we can do this in a, in a way that's not stigmatising. Um, and they also talk about prevention. So I think there are a few pieces sort of falling into place, uh, but we, we do need more recognition of um, obesity as a health issue um, where GPs do have a role to play and then particularly looking at access and referral pathways for people from lower socioeconomic groups because if we get it right for those group of people, everything else usually falls into place. Weight stigma is another massive um, topic that we'll tackle another day. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks, Tegan. Dr Liz Sturgis is a clinical general practitioner and senior research fellow in the School of Primary and Allied Healthcare at Monash University. Yeah, everywhere you look, there are issues there. It's a wicked problem, as you say, Tegan. Mm. Well, next week, we continue the theme of diets and we're looking at whole plant foods versus the infamous or famous ketogenic diet and whether it's good for prevention or treatment. And the person I'm speaking to is Neil Iyengar of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. What we see there are strong associations that have been found repeatedly across many different studies many different populations and many different geographic regions, a strong association between higher consumption of plant-based products and lower incidence 
of several different cancers, predominantly cancers that are related to metabolism, like insulin levels, inflammation, and so forth. And so these tend to be breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, and so forth. At least 13 different cancers are metabolically mediated and have a lower incidence in populations that report higher intake of plant-based foods. And we'll go on to talk about the ketogenic diet as well. I would have thought it made sense that plant-based diets would be protective. Maybe this is just an instinct. I suppose you do have to study these things as well, that that would have a, a better effect than a keto diet. Why did they think a keto diet could be protective. Uh, creating metabolic stress and then there's a whole hormonal thing going on here which is that you have uh, hormones that related to insulin called insulin-like growth, growth factors which are cancer promoting and whether the ketogenic diet reduces those and then there's a whole instance of what happens when you've got cancer. So all that next week on, uh, on the Health Report. I wouldn't miss it. Well that's good because you're going to be here anyway. <laughs> you've been listening to the Health Report with me Norman Swan. And me Tegan Taylor. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.